Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. copies of the scriptures. I invite you to turn with me in the book of Exodus to Exodus 25. In a moment I will read 25, 23 through 30. And if you also want to put your finger in Exodus 37, 10 through 16, I'll also read that. We're just saying about Jesus Christ, who is our hope in life and in death. What is your hope this morning? Where does your hope lie? Does it lie in the philosophy of this world? Philosophy that says things are going to get better and better? People are going to get better and better? Or is our hope not in what this world teaches or what this world says, but in who Christ is and what he has done? The things of this world and the people in this world are not getting better and better. If anything, it's getting worse and worse. But we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the one who gives new hearts and new life to those who are sinners like us. To save us from the wrath to come. Christ, our hope in life and in death. A confidence to live confidence to die. With this in our mind, would you stand with me as I read Exodus 25, beginning in verse 23 through 30, and then I will skip over again to Exodus 37, 10 through 16. I think you will see why I'm reading these two passages of Scripture together. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length and a cubit its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it and you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim and you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners as its four legs. Close to the frame, the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. 
You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now Exodus 37, 10. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, and a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it a hand breadth wide and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. And he made the vessels of pure gold that were, bowl, that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. We praise you for Christ who loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She might be holy and without blemish. And so, Lord, we pray with our Savior this morning Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth, that we might be clean. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One little footnote that this should be, if you look, have your sheet with the lines in it, it should be the bread of the presence, not the table of the presence. That's my, my fault. It should be the bread of the presence. So if you want to make that correction now, you can do that. Have you ever been in someone's house that you've never been in before? There might be a request that you make as you enter into their house Give me a tour. Show me around. I don't know if it's just because we're curious as to what's behind all of the doors. I don't know if it's maybe just to get to know people better. When you are in their house, you see what they have in their house, you learn something about them. You get to know them, who they are. Maybe we just want to see all the stuff that they got. Maybe if we're honest, we're sizing things up. What is their house like? What does it tell us about who they are? Maybe there's even a comparison. If we're the ones giving the tour of our house, we want people to like what they see. What a nice house. I've lo I love what you've done with the place. What nice decor. 
Maybe it's a chance for our egos to be stroked, but in, Hebrews, in, in Exodus 25 and 37, God is commanding what is to be his dwelling place. It's his tent called the tabernacle. It's very specific and very detailed. God says precisely what is to be in the tabernacle, how it's to be constructed, and what it is used for. And as we are, in a sense, getting a tour of his house, his dwelling place, it has to dawn upon us that what we find in this tent and what we find in this dwelling place of God, we would actually find in any dwelling place. And maybe some of these things we would find in most dwelling places. While still special, there are items that are common to show God really is dwelling among his people. All the items we might think are needed for someone's house or home or dwelling place, he includes in his dwelling place. Imagine that God would say, I'm coming to dwell among you. I'm coming to this place. I'm going to be in your midst, and I'm going to set up this tent. And then you go into the tent, and what's there? Nothing. Just like if someone were to invite you over to their house or their apartment. And they said, come, let me show you where I live. And you went there, and there was nothing there. What would you say? Are you really living here? Is this really your home? God is telling us about his dwelling place where he will dwell among his people. The tabernacle, we find specific furniture which signals to the Israelites and which signals to us that God really did live and dwell among his people. And so where does Yahweh begin? He begins in the most personal and intimate room, doesn't he? He begins in that place that's called the Holy of Holies. That's a superlative upon a superlative. It's like saying the greatest of the great or the best of the best of, or the most spectacular of everything that is spectacular. This place, this room, the Holy of Holies is the holiest of all places on earth. There is no place that is more holy than this place. It is the Holy of Holies. And what is it there that's in this most intimate room? It's the heart of the whole tabernacle. It's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark where the presence of God is said to have dwelt above the mercy seat. God's presence made manifest on the earth. And so God brings us into his most intimate room to begin with, to show us himself, to show us who he is. And now he moves us out into this next room called the holy place. And as we get this tour of God's dwelling place, we have to keep in mind, everything in the tabernacle is there for a reason. It has a perfect purpose, and it's telling us something about the Lord. It's telling us about who He is. You don't know the Lord if you don't know His dwelling place. And so, 
as the Lord instructs Moses, as the Lord instructs Israel. These are the things that are going to make up my dwelling place. These are the things that it must contain, that these things that are needed. We have to realize that, that this isn't just to fill up his house with stuff. This isn't just to impress. This isn't just for someone to come in and say, Yahweh, I really like what you did with the place. The Lord is communicating to his people. The Lord is communicating to us. Do we have eyes to see and do we have ears to hear what the Lord is saying as he purposefully and strategically and gloriously establishes the various pieces, the various furniture that is in his dwelling place, the tabernacle. And as we move from that most intimate place, the Holy of Holies, into the holy place, now we are drawn to another piece of furniture. This piece of furniture that is simply a table. It's something that we might expect to find in any dwelling place, a table. Its purpose is to hold various dishes and also to hold food. I don't know about your house, but in my house, the table is one of the most used pieces of furniture. It's a place where our family regularly eats together. It's where we daily meet together. There's something special that happens around the table. Do you know this experience? Have you you had this experience? Do you have this experience now? When you gather around a table, and specifically when you gather around a table to eat, there is vulnerability expressed. We are all eating with others around us. We're maybe eating with other people watching us. How does that make you feel? We might get food on our faces. In fact, do you remember what David says in Psalm 23, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Why does he say that? He says that because when you're gathered around that table, when the Lord's prepared this table and you're there, you've laid down all your weapons, you're defenseless. You're in a posture of being vulnerable. David's saying, I can be at this table in the presence of my enemies and they're not going to hurt me because you're watching over me and you're protecting me and you are with me. And so when you gather around a table, there is this vulnerability, where all of our pride is laid down and we have to eat together. But there is another thing expressed, togetherness. Eating a meal brings us together. It brings us closer. I find now that one of the most uncomfortable things to do is to eat alone. Eating itself is enjoyable when you have delicious food that you are eating, but how much more enjoyable when you are in the company of family and friends. Even if you're just getting to know the person or the people, I would rather eat with people than eat by myself. And even so, in the act of being around the table together does something to us. It's not a mundane thing. It's a God-designed thing. 
And so here is this, tab- this table in the tabernacle. And while the table is important, the main focus does not appear to be the table itself per se, but what is on the table, what the table holds that is significant. Let's start for a moment with the table. The table, like the Ark of the Covenant, is made of acacia wood. Like the Ark of the Covenant, it's overlaid with gold. The table, like the Ark, has four rings attached to its four corners. The table, like the Ark, has four poles that are made of acacia wood, also covered with gold, that would be placed into those rings to carry the table. One difference, it seems, is that the poles that were placed in the ark were never removed. And we're not told that about the table. And so it could be that once the table was in place in the tabernacle that these poles were removed. Think of the similarities there between the ark of the covenant and now this table that the Lord is describing for us. With these similarities of, of the ark and the table, with them both being made of acacia wood, with them both being overlaid with gold, with them both having rings and poles with which they are carried. We've moved, yes, from the holy of holies to the holy place, but guess what? We haven't moved out of the glory of God. The glory of God is still there in that place. And this table is another expression of the glory of God that they are to be in when they are in the tabernacle. And I don't know about you, but why would you ever want to move away from the glory of God? If God is putting his glory on display, guess what? That's where I want to be. Put me there in God's glory. I want to be surrounded by his glory. I want it to envelop me. I want to be bathed in his glory. And so we have moved out of the holy of holies into the holy of place, but we have not moved out of God's glory. And there was also molding around this table, a gold rim that was a hand breadth wide, placed around the edge of the table. And this would have been, perhaps, so that things would not have accidentally slid off of the table. Everything on the table remains on the table. You don't want the stuff on the table falling off. Also, you have these plates and dishes made of pure gold for incense. It had flagons. That's not a word that we use in the ESV. It says flagons. It's pitchers. Maybe we'd use that more frequently. Pitchers and bowls that would contain drink offerings. All of these vessels made of pure gold. And last but not least, they were to set on the table the bread of the presence. This was to be set before the Lord, it says, regularly. In order to better understand this bread, and that's what I want us to focus on this morning, is the bread of the presence that was put on this table. Just turning your Bibles over to the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus, chapter 24, helps us get a better idea of this bread that was placed on the tabernacle. So Leviticus 24, verse 5 through verse 9, says this. You shall take fine flour and break 12 loaves of bread from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. 
And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. So here are these 12 loaves of bread put in two stacks or two piles, six in each pile. These 12 loaves symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel and encapsulated the whole people of God. Frankincense was then put on the pile of bread, as it says there, as a remembrance, as a remembrance, a memorial offering before the Lord. And that these were to be arranged on this table every Sabbath by Aaron, later by other priests. But then Aaron and his sons would take those other loaves that were replaced, and they would then partake of them and eat them in the Lord's presence in that holy place. as a holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings. But why this bread of the presence? Why is it significant? Why is it there? What is its purpose? And more importantly, what does it tell us about God? The bread of the presence was to be a regular reminder to the priests and ultimately to the people that they were represented before Yahweh. They were to be reminding themselves almost constantly of certain truths because they, like us, were prone to forget. Are you prone to forget? (laughs) Do you need a reminder, a constant reminder? My wife now says to me, set a reminder on your phone to tell you. We need reminders. We need constant reminders. The bread of the presence was to be a constant reminder. Just like we must have certain truths about who God is paraded before us and heralded to us and made visible to us, it was no different for the people of God back then. Would we then remember these truths today? Would we remember these truths afresh? And would we allow these truths to speak to us wherever we are in life, whatever it is that we are going through, so that we would see We need them. We can't live without them. And would they comfort us? And would they reassure us today? Let's look at three reminders. Three reminders. You have to do all the writing this morning in your outline if you want that. But that's all right. I trust that you can do that. Number one, the bread of the presence is a reminder of God's gracious covenant. The bread of the presence is a reminder of God's gracious covenant. Imagine with me for a moment the priests gathered there around the table in that holy place, maybe quietly or with few words partaking of this bread, and as they did, their minds were drawn back to a particular day on Mount Sinai when Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and 70 elders of Israel went up on the mount. There it says that they saw the God of Israel. There they saw what was underneath his feet, that pavement of sapphire, 
like the clearness of heaven before them. And that God, as they saw him and as they beheld that pavement underneath his feet, they did not die, but they were preserved and kept alive. And then what does it say? And they ate there and they drank there in the presence of God. What were they doing? They were ratifying the covenant, or another way we could say it, they were confirming the covenant between them and God. What is a covenant? It is a commitment to a relationship. It's like a marriage where both parties make vows, make promises to one another. This is how I will live with you. This is how I will live before you. This is very solemn, very great promises, precious promises that are made. We might even think about it like marriage vows. How much greater, though, the promises of the living God of the universe, Yahweh himself, that he makes with his people. And how his people are to devote their lives to him in relationship. How are Yahweh and his people able to live in this kind of relationship together? How are God's people able to live in relationship with God? How are those men on the mount able to see God and live and eat? It's only by God's grace. It's not a covenant that the Israelites earned. They hadn't earned this relationship by what they had done. It's not a covenant that the Israelites deserved because of anything that was in them. It wasn't a covenant that the Lord made with them because they were so beautiful. In fact, look with me for a moment at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 9. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Wow, that is a special privilege. You are a privileged people. Look at what the Lord has done for you. You are his treasured possession. You are special. Let's keep going. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see it there? It's not because you were numerous. In fact, you were the fewest. It's not because you had anything or possessed anything. God chose you because God loved you. That was it. And so as the priests in the tabernacle took this bread of the presence and ate the bread, they were called on behalf of the people that they didn't have any right to this covenant. This covenant was not theirs to control. It was not theirs to determine if they liked it or not. Well, if God does what I want, then I will keep the covenant. But if God crosses me, if he doesn't do what I want, then I'm out. It was not theirs to decide when or if they participated in it. 
But this is how many might treat covenants today. This is the approach of many to their marriage. Do what I want and I'll stay. Don't do what I want. I'm out of here. I will decide when and if I keep the covenant. But guess what? That's not a covenant. The only reason the Israelites could be a part of this covenant, the only reason they could even think about having a relationship with Yahweh, the creator of all things and the almighty judge, is because he came to them. He established a relationship with them. He redeemed them. He showered his steadfast love on them. He loved them first. That's the way it works. That's the way it always works. God moving, God initiating, God choosing, God loving first. And so the priests stood around the table, eating the bread of the presence, glorifying in the gracious covenant of God. God's faithfulness was undergirding the covenant. And what was there right behind the veil as they ate that bread? The Ark of the Covenant. The ark, which was a visible representation of the covenant Yahweh had made with his people. And specifically, what was in the ark? The two tablets that are the testimony of the Lord. The two tablets, which would have God's ten words, his ten commandments written down by the very finger of God. The law, which was to instruct the people on how they were to live in relationship with God. Remember, priests, Remember, people of God, as you eat the bread about what lies just on the other side of the veil, it's nothing less than a reminder of God's gracious covenant with his people. Number two, the bread of the presence is a reminder of God's unfailing provision. The bread of the presence is a reminder of God's unfailing provision. (laughs) This is a constant reminder that is needed for the Lord's people. We must be reminded of it today. A reminder of God's unfailing provision. The people of God were in the wilderness of Sinai. They would continue to follow the tabernacle through the wilderness until they reached the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, but they were not in that land yet. How would they survive? How could they make it in such a barren place? They needed to eat, and eat they did. Why? Not because they had found food, not because they produced food, they ate because the Lord gave them food. The people had been grumbling against the Lord for their lack of food, and so what did the Lord send? He sent them manna. Manna being that word that the people called it, which asks, what is it? We read in Exodus 16 that the manna was like coriander seed, it was white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Have you ever been to Krispy Kreme Donuts? They give their free samples, right? When the donuts come, they're like fresh, they're hot, right? Have you ever had one of those donuts and you 
bite into it. It's like it melts in your mouth almost. Imagine waking up every morning and there's Krispy Kreme donuts all over the floor. I would weigh 600 pounds. Okay, maybe that's an exaggeration of the manna. But here's the point. God gave them what was good. And it was very good. God didn't just give them food to eat. Here's a bunch of broccoli you can have. There's going to be broccoli on the floor every morning. No thanks, I want the Krispy Kreme donuts on the floor every morning. God gave them something good to eat, something that would appeal to their appetites. Why would God give them good food? Because God is good. Would we ever doubt God's unfailing provision? Would we ever question if the Lord will provide He will provide, and his provision never fails. His provision in the past points to his provision today and tomorrow and the next day and the next and the next and the next. Do you need the Lord's provision? Do you need the Lord to provide? Are you to the edge of the place where you need the Lord to do something and intervene and provide That's precisely where he grows your faith and your trust in him. He gets you to that place where you have to depend more. And guess what? On this side of heaven, we will always need to depend more. Just when I think in my own life, I've learned the lesson of dependence. Guess what? No, you haven't, Tyler. There's more. He wants our faith to be completely in him. He never fails. So why would he fail in providing for his people? He won't and he doesn't. The priests... There stood around the table, eating the bread of the presence, glorifying in the unfailing provision of God. And what was there right behind the veil? It was the ark. And in the ark was some of the manna that fed the people in the wilderness, the manna that sustained the people of God as they traveled through a barren wilderness and wasteland, bread from heaven that kept them alive, that did not fail, that came day by day, morning by morning, bread that speaks to God's faithfulness and to his trustworthiness. Remember priests, remember people of God as you eat the bread about what lies just on the other side of the veil. It's nothing less than a reminder of God's unprevailing, unfailing provision for his people. Number three, and finally, the bread of the presence is a reminder of God's constant nearness. The bread of the presence is a reminder of God's constant nearness. We haven't talked about the specifics of this yet. Let's consider what this bread is called. It's the bread of the presence. Some translations might call it show bread, which comes from a German word that Martin Luther used when he translated the Bible. So then William Tyndale, as he was translating and putting the Bible into English, 
He used Martin Luther's German translation as one of the translations that he consulted with. He transliterated over into showbread. So if your translation says showbread, that's where you get it from. But if we're to take it very literally, this bread of the presence, as I've been calling it, even more woodenly is the bread before his face. That's what it says. It's the bread before his face. This does not mean that the bread gave or brought the presence of God, but rather it was to be placed in the very presence of God. And so there the priests stood around the table eating the bread of the presence, glorifying in the constant nearness of God. And what was right there behind the veil? The ark with the mercy seat where the presence of God abided. It was there Moses would speak and talk with God. It was there one would be closest to God. Where the ark of the covenant was, there was the presence of Yahweh. And it was there in the presence of God where atonement had to be made on behalf of the people in order to cleanse them and remove their sin from them. Remember, priests, remember people of God, as you eat the bread about what lies just on the other side of the veil, it's nothing less than a reminder of God's constant nearness, of his presence with his people. So we've seen the reminder of God's gracious covenant, God's unfailing provision, and God's constant nearness. All of these truths are encouraging, aren't they? But why? Why are they encouraging? How do they get from the Israelites in the wilderness into our lives today? Again, we don't have a tabernacle in our midst anymore. We don't have a table that holds the bread of the presence in the holy place. It is the bread of the presence that finds its fulfillment in Christ. All of these reminders converge to find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The bread of the presence points us to Jesus. He is the bread of life. And so if you have your Bibles again, John chapter 6, we read some of this today. But let's develop this. John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. 32 through 35. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here is the bread from heaven, the bread that is from the very presence of God himself, the bread who has come down to give life to mankind. And then what does he say in verse 53? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not the bread like the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. While the manna gave life to the Israelites in the wilderness, and while the leaders and the elders ate in the presence of God and did not die, Jesus comes to give life now to those who put their faith in him. Jesus doesn't give physical life. He gives something far better. He gives spiritual life, even eternal life. Is this the life that you know? Is this the life that you know because you have put your faith and trust in Jesus? Is this what you know because you have said, I believe, Jesus, that you are the bread from heaven, and I'm going to receive you, and I'm going to take you in. I'm going to put all of my faith in you. I'm going to completely trust you. And I'm going to look to the cross as that place where you bore my sins in your body on that tree so that I might be given your righteousness, so that I might be given, I might be forgiven of my sins. Jesus also teaches us how to, how to pray so that we might, might daily depend upon God's provision comes in the Lord's Prayer. You remember what that says? Matthew 6, 11, give us this day our daily bread. Why does Jesus teach us to pray this way? The unfailing provision of God goes on in the life of his people. They still need to depend upon him and trust him in order to provide everything that they need. Let me stress that word. Everything that they need. And notice that it's give us this day our daily bread. It's not bread for tomorrow. It's not bread for next week. It's not a stockpile of bread for the rest of our lives. It's God's provision today. It is the daily bread that he gives. Have you ever thought about why is that? Why are we to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Well, yes, we're to trust him to provide. He will give to us. But what also happens as we pray this prayer and the Lord provides? Built into this prayer of give us this day our daily bread is a constant heart attitude of thankfulness. The Lord gives daily his bread to us. And what happens in our hearts and in our lives? We then are in constant thankfulness to him. Which day do you not need to thank him for what he has given you? Thank him each and every day. As he provides his bread every day, thank him every day. We never move on from thankfulness. We never get over thankfulness. We continue to thank him, and we thank him, most importantly, for the greatest provision that he has given to us, the provision of his own son, Jesus Christ. One last place where we see this bread of the presence converge in Christ is in the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22, Verses 18 through 20. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. 
Luke 22, 18 through 20. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Here's another table, a better table, a table where all believers are invited to partake. And they eat this bread and they drink this cup. Why? To remember, to be reminded of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so now, here, as the Lord's royal priesthood. We, rather, we gather around the table celebrating the gracious new covenant purchased by the very precious blood of Jesus. It's here we are drawn upon the unfailing provision of Christ's death and resurrection as the sustenance that we need to give us life eternal life, and it's here that we know the constant nearness of God as we commune with the risen Christ himself. And what better news is there than this, that we don't need to look past a veil anymore. We don't need to say, look what's right, on, right behind the veil back over there. No, we have full access now to God, access into his presence, access into his glory. Remember, priests, remember people of God as you eat the bread that we proclaim the sacrifice of Christ until he returns. Let's pray. Father, use your word in our lives today. As we meditate upon the bread of the presence, may we also behold our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the bread the true bread from heaven. And whoever is hungry comes to him, partakes of this bread, will be satisfied. Whoever thirsts, believes in him, will never be thirsty again. Lord, I pray there's someone here today who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would do that today. They would find they need a Savior to save them from their sins, that they need to repent their sin, turn to Christ, and find the satisfaction of eternal life that He and He alone can give. And Father, let us not be like the Israelites or the Jews who then grumbled. The Israelites grumbled in the wilderness. The Jews grumbled about what Jesus had said. 
And as we hear these words today, and if we hear the voice of our Savior say, would you want to go away as well? We would reply, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. May you be with us today and always, and may we know your constant nearness, even when we are afraid, even when we are unsure, even when we are uncertain, even when we are faltering and wavering and worrying. Because of our Savior, we can know that you are with us and near us that you have not forsaken us and you will not let us fail or fall we pray this in Jesus name amen